funniest player on the team for me is Belly, and it's the way he delivers them for real. It's like when he delivers his jokes, there's no laugh, and you really can't even tell if he's serious or not. It's we deserve this win, man. Fox Force Five flying high in both teams. Oh my goodness! I'm feeling great, man. I'm feeling it's the best I've ever felt. I'm excited. I'm I'm all about winning. I know that the fans here are extremely loyal and passionate, and just like them, I, I want to become not just a playoff team, but a sustained playoff team, and eventually get back to some of that championship success and contention. With the 12th pick in the 2020 NBA Draft, Sacramento Kings select Tyrese Halliburton. Imagine being one of those players that's on a team that you know hasn't been in the playoffs in over a decade, almost two decades, about a decade and a half, then being the first team to actually get to the playoffs. Just being able to be a part of that would definitely be something special. And if we can, you know, end up building a championship contending team, you're winning a championship in Sacramento. Like, that's, that's looked at a lot differently. You probably feel better than you do with anything else. Welcome back to another episode of the King's Pulse podcast presented by the King's Herald. My name is Brendan Nunez. Got Bryant West on here, as we always do. What's going on, Brian? How you doing, man? I'm doing great, bud. Um, happy to have on our friend and uh, King's Twitter goat, Jill Age. How you doing, Jill? I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thank you for coming on. And we're recording this right after the Kings' uh, victory over the Oklahoma City Thunder, the third time in uh, recent weeks that the Kings have seen this Thunder team, and, and they defeated them 122-106 to 106 pretty handily. And it's another game that... Uh, seems to be on the shoulders of the uh, pre-deadline acquisitions from Monty McNair. Buddy Heald has improved and increased his playmaking responsibilities with Halliburton and Fox out as well. And, um, you know, there's not all too much time that I think I want to spend or there is time that we can spend going into this game. But uh, maybe, Brian, is there there anything that you do want to touch on from this showing? Well, more than just this showing, I do want to eat a massive amount of crow for uh, all the doubt I had about Monty McNair's trade deadline. Um, Because while I don't think that uh, any one of these players is going to change the uh, direction of this franchise, I do fully admit that uh, every one of them, in DeLon Wright, um, Mo Harkless, and... uh, um, Terrence Davis, you know, they've already really, really strong cases for being on this roster next year. Um, Terrence Davis, 27 points, five rebounds, three assists, two steals tonight, looked great. Delon Wright has just been killing the thunder in these last week and a half, 21 points, eight assists tonight. Uh, and Mo Harkless didn't shoot the ball exceptionally well tonight, but uh, he played great defense as always, 15 points, three blocks. Um you know, there was a lot of smart people. I know Joe was one of them who said at the trade deadline, you know, these aren't splashy moves, but the Kings just got three real depth pieces, and that was the Kings' biggest single weakness was depth. So, uh, you know, I, I think uh, Monty McNair deserves more credit than we were willing to give him at the trade deadline. So I think the last week and a half of, of success in Sacramento, uh, I will take it all with a giant – grain of salt because uh, the most impressive wins were against a very rusty Lakers team uh, and against the Dallas team. I'm not going to take anything from that. That was a good one. Um, but, you know, Indiana's not great. Oklahoma City is uh, abjectly terrible. 
So it's hard to take too much from these games, uh, but Kings have some good depth, and uh, couldn't say that two weeks, two months ago. Yeah, and in the throughout the entirety of the second quarter, Tyrese Halliburton was being in, uh, interviewed and part of the broadcast. Was there anything, Jill, that stood out to you from what Halliburton was saying during his time on camera? Um. Yeah, <laughs> I liked his uh, his rookie wall comment of, you know, why can't five five-year players hit a wall? Why does it have to be um, rookies? But he's always just a joy to listen to. And I he shows a maturity for the game, I think, that we haven't seen in a long time from any rookies coming in. And I think even the questions were – pretty on par even they had asked this um I know at one point during the losing streak was you know how do you handle coming essentially to a franchise like this that pretty much only knows losing and so many of these guys come in and he said this even during the losing streak like tonight um that you know it shows them what they need to work on but it also shows them how to handle losing and, you know, to try and figure out how to turn it around because so many of these guys growing up, they don't experience this kind of um, adversity at all. You know, most of these guys coming in, at least to the Kings, are end up being top, you know, 10 draft picks that are usually coming from an elite school, uh, you know, was ranked high in the NCAA. They won state championships. You know, they did all these things. And then you come to a perpetually bad, you know, dumpster fire, dumpster fire essentially, of a, of a franchise that, what is it, 28 seasons of total of under 500 basketball. And it's, you know, figuring out how how do you become that team that, that turns it around and, you know, I appreciated he gave his shout-out to um, to Rico Hines. Uh, you know, credit to, I think it was Vladi that brought him in a couple of years ago. He came in prior to Luke. And I want to say he started with uh, the Stockton team. Um, but just what he's been able to do, I don't think people talk individually enough about our development staff I know when, you know, there's that convo of, of Luke Walton, um, it's, you know, the team might not be getting the wins, but they're still, de- you know, developing players. I don't even know if that's necessarily on Luke as much as it's on, you know, Rico, Lindsay, and Bobby, and, and that staff there. You know, they have a history of of being really good development players, and there's a reason why, you know, every summer Rico – you know, houses all-stars, right? They're going to him to develop. So um, I, he's a huge asset here that we have him. I know this last year they promoted him to director of player development and then also gave him a title of an assistant coach. Um, I don't know if, you know, regarding what happens with Luke, I don't know if you could, if you would lose Rico, if you, you know, he would stay. But to me, that's that's someone you, you would you know, you'd be crazy to not keep around, but um, I know later on in the show we'll um, we'll talk a little bit more about him and and some of that stuff. But no, I just I enjoyed you know hearing him in good spirits and happy, and you know he he was having fun with you know the winning, and 
you know, as much as we talk about tanking and the draft and everything else, you know, you still want guys to enjoy being here, you know, and, and to to not make their experience here horrible. So as, as much as people are frustrated with, you know, the, the team winning like this, um, you know, if it keeps your your core, your centerpiece is happy, then, you know, hit hit wherever you are in the draft. You know, hit where you're hitting and and keep going. Plenty of other teams have figured out how to do that without, you know, having a top five pick. So um I, I think it's a fine balance of 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 talent and, and keeping these guys um in, in good spirits while they're here. Yeah, I will completely agree with you that uh, Tyrese Halliburton was a joy to watch on that broadcast. Um, honestly, he should just be on the broadcast the rest of the season uh, if they really want to keep us Kings fans fully engaged. But I want to loop back to something you talked about there. Um, obviously, we, Brendan and I, and quite a few Kings fans have a lot of opinions on Luke Walton. I will say that the one thing that I definitely think that Luke Walton and the coaching staff, because like you said, it's more than just Luke Walton, the good and the bad. Um, the one thing that I really think they've aced this season is that even in the roughest times, even in the two nine-game losing streaks, even while producing one of the worst defenses in NBA history, this team really has some locker room chemistry. Um, you can really tell, even the new guys, everybody's really enjoying playing with each other. There's some real camaraderie uh, going on. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of that just has to do with King's got fun players. Tyrese Halliburton is a fun dude. Tyrese Halliburton is a dude who clearly loves the game of basketball, loves to play with good teammates. And, uh, you know, he's one of those guys who the old catchphrase of makes his teammates better. So he's kind of an easy dude to get along with. Um, and so, you know, as topic of this podcast is clearly going to be uh, – future of Luke Walton, does he deserve to have another season as Sacramento Kings head coach? Um, and, you know, for uh, I don't think that Luke Walton should be the coach of the Kings next year, but I really do feel that there are a lot of positives in what this team is in terms of the players. And, uh, you know, in my head, the right guy, the right coach can turn this team around uh, in not too long a time. I don't think that's Luke Walton. Um, I think as soon as he lost his second nine-game losing streak this year, uh, I was pretty much just done pretending that he was going to be the coach that really turned this franchise around. But um, at the same time, like the, the team is undeniably still competing together. Um, as much shade as I can throw on this late season schedule and I'll, I'll throw a lot on it. I mean, they've been playing some really bad teams. Um, they, they're still going out there and competing and uh, can't really say that about a lot of Kings teams in recent years. Once they've, um, you know, teetered towards the edge of the season, once it's become mathematically clear that they're going to be out of the playoffs. I mean, a couple of years ago, would we have been surprised if this exact situation had led to the Kings losing two straight games to the Thunder after the loss to San Antonio on Friday pretty much ended their playoffs, playoff hopes? I don't know. So, Yeah, um, I will say that 
and I would say unlike you, that I've been preparing for this for a while just so that um, that if it did happen, I I had already, again, prepared myself <laughs> for it. Um, you know, if, if Luke ends up staying, you know, I'd, um, I know whenever I say anything, I don't even know if it would be positive or um, maybe an outside way of thinking, you know, I get the, oh, you're getting paid, you're doing all this stuff, you know, like, I just, reading over Luke's biggest critique that he got that I saw when I was researching in L.A. was they didn't feel like he had enough help in the X's and O's department. Um, I would say this season, by far, to me, out of all of the coaching staff he's had between L.A. and here, to me, this is the strongest coaching staff he's had in terms of X's and O's, and that's with the addition of Gentry and, and Rex. But I will say that with, you know, as much as we don't want to talk about, you know, the the pandemic and, um, you know, money and how it's changed things just outside of money, but just how you build each other, you know, as a group and as a staff, you, you brought in two new X's and O's, you know, coaches, but you don't actually have a training camp, an off-season, or practice time during the season to even work on these new X's and O's that are trying to be implemented. Um, I just think in that sense, it's a, kind of unreasonable that um, you you would expect that if these guys were brought in to help change philosophies, that um, guys would automatically pick it up. And then based on, you know, another interview I saw with Rico today, he was saying how fans and people in general just don't understand um, how much lack of work these players have had in the last year that, you know, he talked about how uh, the team, you know, got shut down against the Pelicans. Um, he was, he calls, you know, all the guys he works out, his kids, you know, whether it be the Kings, you know, and, and other players around the league that, you know, he's calling his kids to, to check in on him. And, and he made it very clear that, you know, for as much money as these guys have, and they're all spread out over the country, if they don't have, if they did not have access essentially to a basketball court at their house, these guys were dribbling at their homes for three months. Like that was their extent of, of development. Um, some of them were battling being sick, you know, and, and coming back and being themselves. And so he was saying that when they went to the bubble last year, he felt a lot of the the criticism was unfair um, in the sense that, yes, he knows, you know, all the stuff, you know, historically here and, and how much everybody wanted to win and, and do that stuff. But they essentially got thrown, you know, to the Sharks with, multiple players, you know, coming back from COVID, not having um, picked up a ball in three months. Um, and then, boom, you're now, you know, starting the season again and you're not getting a training camp. Um, he talked about how there are certain players that he already that during an off season, he works with three, he works with them for three months straight. So 
put it this way. If, if you were part of the bubble, okay, you got some work then. If guys were outside of the bubble, you weren't getting work at all. Um, and, and then to come into the season without a training camp, without essentially an off season, um, with no practice, I just think it's, again, not making excuses, but there are other ways to look at it that, you know, it's, would be, would we be looking at it the same way if this was year one or two of a playoff drought and year 15 and not year 15? I don't know. Um, I'm not saying that Luke is by any means the best coach available. And you guys know that, um, you know, I have a whole list of, of coaches that I think are better in the X and O's department, but I can also understand if they think Gentry and Rex and Rico and who they have is good enough in that area and the guys like Luke and he can, you know, keep them together and they feel like with an off season, with the training camp, with practice, that they can really implement what they want to implement um, and give it a real shot, you know, and with Monty making moves, you know, that he didn't necessarily make um, during the off season last year. I won't be mad if they do that because, again, I can understand it. Is it my number one option? Not necessarily, but can I understand it? Yes. Yeah, and I want to dive more into what you were just talking about, but real quick, I I do want to lay out um, the recent quotes and reportings that have come out that led us to thinking, you know, um, some hints towards is there potential that Walton does stick around since it felt like earlier signs were pointing towards that being a pretty low possible outcome and um, still up in the air, obviously. And in some of the reportings, I think the first one that really caught my eye was this Shams Amick reporting from earlier in the week. And uh, I'm going to kind of go through, I have like two or three different articles of reporting here. So feel free, either one of you interrupt me at any point if you want to have any comments on this while I kind of go through it. And, And the quote I pulled here from the Shams Amick article is, the Kings not only owe him, who is Luke Walton, a combined $11.5 million after this season, but also, according to sources with knowledge of the deal, are unable to stretch those payments out over several years if they fired him, end quote. Um, and that was interesting as they go on to explain that that is not typical for coach contracts and usually they are able to stretch it out. And um, there's been all the reportings of the Kings ownership losing a – very notable sum of money with the pandemic, and and that's understating it. Um, So it does seem like finances could be a concern of not moving on from Walton. It wouldn't surprise me if that is a a significant reason on why Walton is around this season as well. Um, And then after that Shams Amick reporting, there was um, a Howard Beck article on Sports Illustrated that featured Fox and some quotes from him in there that were kind of backing up Walton. As we've seen Fox do throughout the year, um, it seems like, you know, there were multiple games that I felt like could have been a tipping point where it's like, okay, this is the type of game that with how everything has gone over the last year and a half or plus with Walton that, um, you know, at the end of an eight-game losing streak, I want to say they lost pretty bad to Detroit during some time in that stretch. And there's a couple other nights where it's like, man, it really feels like this is the type of game that you could fire your coach after, and you could see that happen. And it seems like that's when Fox would come out and be not extremely vocal vocal in, in supporting Walton and over the top or anything, but saying that, 
um, you know, putting a little bit of the onus on the players. And I think that this article had a little bit of that same tone to it. Um, and Fox mentions Walton as someone that he's grown to trust. And the quote from the article here I have is, if you're not winning as a team, guys get traded, guys who are barely hanging on, get cut and are out of the league and coaches get fired, said Fox, who has seen all of that in his brief career. Perhaps with that in mind, Fox made a broad case for continuity, noting that the best teams are the ones where players play together longer and develop chemistry and coaches continue to grow and trust all of their players. Everyone wants to continue to grow together and keep this group together and continue to play for a coach that you trust in, Um, which I think is obviously very notable. um, But I will say, you know, teams he's talking about with continuity, um, it's hard to find an example, and I'll, I'll let you take the floor on this, Brian, since you were able to find one of a coach that really was seen as doing a poor job at the beginning of his tenure and because he was given the benefit of the doubt and allowed some continuity and to stick around through maybe what were some tough times that he was eventually able to power through. You know, I think teams that Fox is talking about where um, they succeed because of continuity, it's because that is a proven coach in place if you think of um, Miami or uh, obviously San Antonio is an outlier situation with Popovich, but there's a reason that good coaches are allowing continuity on some of these teams, and it was it's hard to find an example of that, um, uh, of a turnaround, really, because of continuity. Yeah, it's actually, it was pretty hard for me to try and find a example that's like Luke Walton where a season or two into his tenure, everybody was really questioning if he should stick around. Um, and then just immediately the next season saw a turnaround um, to become the, the, the playoff, um, the playoff regular and the uh, high culture that, you know, the Kings clearly want to think they can develop. Um, I'm sure that, Hoops nerds out there will immediately come up with like three or four good examples over the course of NBA history. Um, to me, the best recent example would be Quinn Snyder of the Utah Jazz. Um, his first season, they were 38 and 44, and the next season they were 40 and 42. I remember quite a few people then were like, boy, is this dude really going to be able to turn around a small market team? Um, and I mean, they, they weren't a, a talent-deprived roster. He, they, they had Gordon Hayward. Uh, they had a young Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors, um, but they missed the playoffs two years in a row and then had five really strong seasons. And what looks to be, uh, on, from the outside anyway, a really strong team culture. Uh, we all know that Quinn Snyder handled a pretty rocky Rudy Gobert-Donovan Mitchell relationship over the last ten months. And uh, now I believe are they still... Yeah, they're still number one in the West. So, you know, I think that's the best case scenario. It's certainly not one that I want to be like point to and say, this is what Luke Walton could do if we just all be a little patient. Because I definitely think that even in those rocky years, Quinn Snyder had more results than Luke Walton uh, had, especially on defense. I think when I looked up, the Jazz were a top 10 defense in both of those seasons. And the Kings are certainly not. Um, so it, it, it 
you know, I struggle because I, I fully understand where Jill's coming from here in terms of team continuity, especially for an organization like Sacramento. There's that, what seven seven is, coaches in eleven years, and and it's yeah. because we're not firing people. And the thing is, when you let go of a GM, fire their coach. Like stop half-assing it. Like if you're gonna do it, <laughs> yep. do it. Because we keep coming back to this same conversation. Like it's and and why there is so so much non-continuity be, because yeah. of those decisions that it, it at some point like. You gotta, you gotta go with like, you gotta go with it. I mean, it's if it's running out, you know, his contract. I don't, I don't know. Like, I mean, there's, there's good coaches out there. There are. Um, I don't know. We haven't heard anything about a money type guy. Like, I mean, I think Ham mentioned today, but because of where he came from, it was Mike D'Antoni and like Mikhail. Well, no, I don't want that. No. Um. So I just—I uh, certainly don't, I don't want know. <laughs> so it's—I don't know. Um, I don't know. It's—it's it's just frustrating because we we keep having these same conversations because it's you're always <laughs> firing one out of the two. You know what I mean? Like there's there's yeah. just never any cohesion, and you leave everybody wondering, right? Is this his guy? Is it not his guy? And we're in a pandemic and, and no reporters can be at, you know, the facility at all. And so no one's getting to see any kind of day-to-day interactions like we usually are. Um, you're yeah. you're living by, you know, Zoom calls and very piecemeal information that it's every, – everything is so who, – who the hell knows? Like, I mean, yeah. Bonnie and Luke say they talk every day. Like, the, to me, the fact that he's he wasn't fired during the season – I, I, I don't that <laughs> led you me know, to believe that maybe he was going to keep going. I'm the biggest Luke Walton skeptic in the fan base, but I also actually approve of the Kings not firing him midseason because I feel like that was a step towards not being the Kings of even of more the so. <laughs> just, just it like. I, I would let Luke Walton go a few days after the season, but I would have kept him throughout the season just because, like you said, this season, more than any, involves so many complications that we on the outside can't really understand, and we on the outside will never really capture in our 280-character tweets. <laughs> so Monty McNair certainly has a much greater understanding of what Luke Walton actually means to this team. That said, I do want to admit, like, this is a thing that's happening to every team in the league. Every team in the mm-hmm. league didn't get this practice time, and there are certainly a ton of teams that didn't spend half the season in giant losing streaks and didn't produce some of the worst defense in NBA history. Like, there is a more complicated and that's you have coach. The question too is it is it the players or is it the coaching or is it both? Yeah. Well, like, right? there's not a more complicating coach. I think, to play for than Tom Thibodeau. And mm-hmm. Tom Thibodeau has taken a disastrous New York Knicks team who have been, you know, they, they, they have been a laughing stock of the league as long as the Kings have. Equal ownership and concerns. Right. And do a Equal top ownership five concerns. <laughs> and, yeah. And they're fourth in the East. 
like fourth in the East doesn't mean as much as fourth in the West, of course, but like they're they're they have a turnaround. Um, you know, I, I, I'm trying to look at the other coaches who have come in the last couple of years and see their turnaround. Um, Nate McMillan, who I know Jill is a big mm-hmm. fan of, uh, has turned this Hawks team around like that. Um, yep. But and but that <laughs> Hawks team was also <laughs> we ended up finding out that Hawks team that there was so much um, friction that. At least people like I would say on the West Coast. At least no, I had no idea about, or at least outside of Atlanta. Yeah. Um. You ended up finding out, which the thing is, is we don't we don't have that here. Which we heard it with Jaeger. But my thing too is I don't want them to just listen to those players either because they haven't proven right anything yet. Yes, they're developing individually, yeah. but they also haven't proven anything as a group of why we should keep it either. Right. I mean, when it comes to wins and losses, you know. I feel like Jaeger's history and why Jaeger was fired is one of my greatest – one of the reasons I most think that the idea that Luke Walton should get a pass because I, – I, I see this on Twitter quite a few times whenever I criticize Luke Walton, like when I criticize the defense specifically because I think we all agree, and our buddy Kenny uh, says this pretty much every day, defense starts with the players. Like you have to have – high motor defenders to have a good defense full stop this is why i think i always end up gravitating towards high motor defenders as my draft crush but that's a different conversation but every time we criticize luke walton's defense there's some aspect of the fandom that says well what's he supposed to do like he doesn't he clearly doesn't have a high defense players and they're Clearly not buying in. So what's he supposed to do? Just go yell well, at them? I mean, he's not supposed to switch Damian Jones the, onto Steph Curry every possession. But, but it's yeah. also been made very yeah. aware that he's not the X's and O's guy. Yeah. That, well, but it's also right. Like, and if, but it's his job the, over everything. Yes. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Or to see people the down if they're not me. doing what they're supposed to be doing. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, and to me, for me, like we. Sorry, Brendan. We we fired Dave Yeager. Because he couldn't get the players to buy in. Now, I, I, I want to circle back. I just talked ad nauseum about how uh, pleased I am with this team, this team's camaraderie. So I don't want to just pretend like sure. this team has fully quit on Luke Walton. They are still one of the worst defenses in league history. And it took a really easy schedule to end the season for that to turn around. So you know like, what I was me, wondering too, though, is, uh-huh. is what you just mentioned that the, for the first time to me, the players are actually holding themselves accountable. Where you had a coach that got you to 39 wins, whether it was sustainable or not, right? He got you got to 39 wins, um, and you did nothing but say you didn't like to get yelled at and right. And there was all the other issues with the front office, but. I mean, was was that a reality check to them, you know, that <laughs> we had something, right, and the scores and, you know, seemed to be moving in the right direction and wham, you know, you, you went back down to the bottom again, right, like, and we're mm-hmm. being talked about not as the fun new team but as, you know, again, a laughing stock and, oh, it's just the Kings again. Um, I don't remember ever hearing this kind of or, you know, 
Whether it is just them talking, I don't know, but I don't remember ever hearing this kind of accountability before either of them saying, like, no, like, it's our basketball IQ. Like, it's our, you know, we're not where we're supposed to be. We're not on a string. We're not doing this. Um, I don't remember ever hearing that from them prior to this season. I think with this Walton conversation, it, I'm I'm kind of surprised to hear where you guys are coming from. I'm going to be very disappointed if Walton is the head coach next season. And what it comes down to for me, I think like the pros you guys are talking about to me sound great for an assistant coach. I think Walton would be a phenomenal assistant coach, but I do think that somebody else needs to be running the ship. And what it comes down to for me is like, name me the pros of Walton during his time here. And, and you said that, you know, the whole locker room thing, absolutely agree. Um, and the one that I can find is that he, you know, said he wanted an emphasis on making it a competent half-court offense, and I think he absolutely has done that. Um, although, you know, as is going to be the case with a lot of these pros cons, I do think there's an asterisk because Fox took a ginormous leap, and I don't feel like that is a credit to Walton, although we can never be sure. And Halliburton is a phenomenal half-court player, so I do think there's a good chance that goes beyond Walton. But that was a goal he had set, and I think he's clearly succeeded in that. But outside of that and, you know, the locker room seeming to be in a good place, even though there has been this roller coaster ride of a season, I mean, like, Joe, can you name me another pro of, of Walton during his time here? I think you listed what it is, and that's always been what he's known for as a coach. Like, that's that's the problem. That's all we have to go on. Like, we don't have the, you know, the his credentials of, like, a, a Wes Unsell Jr. where he, you know, started as a, you know, as a scout and has taken two different teams and led them offensively to a top ten and defensively to a top ten. Like, we don't have things to go back on what kind of a coach or style he is. Like we've had two seasons of pandemic seasons, right, <laughs> to the end um, of last year to this year that I I honestly, I don't know what his his style is. And all I know is that we brought Gentry and Rex here to work on offense and defense because they felt like he needed more. Um, or Luke himself felt like he needed more. I don't know who, depending on whoever you listen to. Um, yeah, that's that's about it for me. Is that the players like him? I like the staff he has. Can they change it with a normal season? I don't know. But like that's to me, that's all I have to go on. Like that's my pro. That's yeah. that's it. It's it, it's not a ringing endorsement. It's not great. Like, but that's <laughs> that's all I have to pull from. Um, and I would hate to to lose some of those good pieces from that staff if resulting, you know, if him leaving resulted in, like, the Ricos or anything leaving. Well, we've seen him, you know, stay over two regimes. Would he stay over a third? I don't know. Like, um, just because I know for the first time we are seeing um, actual development of players here. Like, that's that's a frustrating thing, that we can't we can't ever just have the full package, right? It always has to be piecemealed some way. But, um, you know, and oh, I don't know. That's, yeah, that's my pro. Yeah. <laughs> Basically yeah. what I think, it, like it's not. I think the only other pro I can think of is that the star player is throwing awesome. his support behind him. I think that's it. 
And I, I agree with you, Brendan. If Luke Walton is the coach of the team next year, I'm going to be uh, pretty disappointed. Because you know, and, and if Monty makes it, he can't miss. Like, that's a you cannot miss. Oh, right? yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. If Monty McNair throws his support behind Luke, another year of Luke Walton and this team does not take the step next year, like, we're we're going to be in a much worse place. The three years of steps we've been waiting for, right? Like, that was part of the reason, you know, that Vladi tried to sell of getting rid of Jaeger and bringing in his guy was yeah. we're ready for that step. You know, and clearly they weren't. Yeah. Um, but I agree with you. There are, there are aspects of this coaching staff that I'm Rico Hunt. Absolutely keep him. Absolutely keep the developmental staff. Um, because, as it, like, okay, this is another one of those. Uh, we don't exactly know how much behind the scenes, blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't know how much Luke Walton has specifically spent time working with De'Aaron Fox and Tyrus Halliburton and all the young guys in terms of the actual on-court developmental work. So I don't want to just sit here and be like, Rico Hines is a genius. Luke Walton needs to be fired. Um, but I, I would very much like to see Rico Hines stay because I know how many dang players and professionals around this league truly respect what he does. So, Right. When your nickname is the uh, development godfather, like, mm-hmm. I mean, right? That's, you know, in the godfather of LA, in. like that's, you know, that speaks on. And then even, Make him you know, head Hallie, Hallie in that, in his interview today, Hallie was saying, who, who is he sitting next to? Who is he watching tapes with? Who, you know, who is he picking his brain with? Um, and what was really interesting too in that interview, not Hallie's, but the Rico one I listened to today, um, he was saying how much, that rookie Tyrese reminds him of rookie Steph Curry. Not their games, but just their demeanors, um, their IQ of the game, uh, what he can envision as a leader, um, pieces like that, that he just said he's been such a joy uh, to be around. And this this interview was from the end of January. So, um, so time has passed now, and he had had, what, two months with a kid and uh, was – telling these, you know, Toronto natives how much he loves Halliburton and that as a as a development guy, his thing is he doesn't want to take them and say, oh, I want you to mold, you know, yourself after this guy or this guy. It's, you know, I, I see traits in you and how can I make you the best for you, um, you know, and, and improve your style and, and things like that. And, again, like we were saying, it, it speaks volumes with, with how many players – uh, go to him on a on a constant basis, and he was talking about Pascal, and he works with him. I think he said for like three months every summer, and you know Pascal, his history where he didn't start playing until really late, um, in, in his development style. But he said uh, prior to him being a coach, um, he'd he'd have players that would literally get on planes and fly to him you know, to, to get development in when, when Pascal was in the G League and things like that, um, that, like, that's how much they respect this guy and want to put in the work, uh, that you have guys, you know, in between getting on, in between games getting on flights to come get a workout in with you um, and then fly back, you know, before another game. Um, I thought that was pretty crazy. I absolutely love having Rico around, for sure, um, as you guys, for the reasons you guys are laying out, obviously. But personally, I, I mean, I don't think that that's a 
any reason to that that should factor into the decision with Walton to me. Um, Rico did stay for Jaeger, like you mentioned earlier, Jill, and who knows if he would stick around for a third regime, but I don't think that you can keep Walton around for the sake of Rico. Um, and, and the assistant coaching, I, I mean, I think that the – um, product that you're seeing reflected on the floor um, is also representative of them. And Rex Kalamian got a lot of praise at the beginning of the year when the defense looked pretty solid. And, you know, we didn't see much criticism of, of him when it went drastically in the other direction. And while I mentioned the pros of loop that I feel like are pretty limited, and, and I will say, like, you know, Ryan Saunders is a guy that um, was really liked in the locker room. But uh, you know, there's a reason he was moved on from. Um, Zach Levine was backing up Jim Boylan at the end of his career, um, at the end of Boylan's tenure in Chicago, I should say. Um, so I, I don't think that, you know, while while these pros definitely do exist and are notable, I, I think that they totally could be looked over as well. And, and I don't know what Fox is expected to say when he's asked about Luke Walton. Um and yeah, I, I think there's plenty of cons that I can point to with Walton. You know, I think last season he really misutilized Buddy Heald. I think that was the most obvious thing last season. And, and he did revert those, what I, I view as mistakes personally, this season with taking the ball out of his hands a little less often. You could say that's because um, they got Halliburton, but there was Bogdanovich as an option last season. Um, there was Heald being vocally unhappy with his role, um, which does kind of go against, and obviously he seems to be in a good spot with Walton now, um, but I, I I complain. I have issue with Fox and Halliburton not playing together often enough. I have a problem with this switch everything defense. It, to me, it kind of looks like on both ends of the floor, they're kind of just thrown out there in, in this freelance offense that feels very Golden State to me, and I know I shouldn't pick apart the offense too much, but to me, like the offensive success, and again, this is hard to do. I, I do kind of place it more on it. I think that Fox and Halliburton are really taking matters into their own hands in this very basic freelance scheme that most coaches, I feel like, would be able to implement. Like there's nothing complicated to this offense in my mind that is really leading to them being efficient and, and um, active this season. So like while the list of pros, I, I – can name a couple, I do feel like there's a significant list of cons here. Yeah, I love that you said that because there was an article I was reading um, about from when he was with the, the Lakers, and they called it a very simplistic vanilla offense, um, and they felt like he was trying to emulate stuff, but that um, if if the stars were in, that it didn't necessarily fit um, you know, the complete roster as a whole, essentially. Uh, there was a lot of lack of um, off-ball movement and guys standing in corners and, and things like that. But you saying that just made me laugh because he called it the simplistic vanilla offense. I, I totally see it. And I think that, you know, good coaches um, – and, and I think there are some coaches that, you know, are able – are player development coaches and they're not able to take a team to a next level. Like, I guess you could think of a Mark Jackson and do not get me wrong. I am not saying I want Mark oh. Jackson to be the coach of this team. No, no, I'm not no, saying no. that in the slightest. I think you see, like, Brad Stevens getting some of this criticism this year of being able yeah. to take underdog teams. And right. really the strength of what I feel like those coaches – 
is taking players that have clear weaknesses and putting them in positions where those are hidden and their strengths are amplified. And um, sometimes they do struggle with star players, and I think those are two totally different categories and skills for coaches. Um, But I don't think that the former that I mentioned we've seen Walton do with a player during his time here. Yeah. You know another name that uh, we can talk about that was given a little bit extra time? Because I was going to say – um, someone who I thought did a really good job of that in Brooklyn was Kenny Atkinson, but I want to say his first two years there were <laughs> were not pretty. Um, but then by that third year, you kind of saw some continuity and and gelling. And then it was they got mm-hmm. rid of him because they felt they were ready to take the next step, right? Like he got the development and he got those guys where they needed yeah. to be and taken, you know, took that next step. But Kenny is a guy that has always been able to take. Um, you know, rookies and lesser guys and and has been able to put them in you know, over a period of time has ended up figuring out how to put them in, in a winning spot. Same with Dave Yeager. Like, he did that in Memphis, too, right, when he went from an assistant to um, to a head coach there where uh, that was one of the things that people loved about him coming here was that he showed the ability to, to take a not star-filled roster and – you know, and make them fun. Um, I think Kenny Atkinson's a good a good example of that. Um, I'm pretty sure that the only reason that Kenny Atkinson got fired was because uh, Kyrie and KD the stars didn't want cited him. him. Yeah. yeah, they cited right. him for developing this culture and turning this Nets franchise around, which he absolutely did. But as soon as the stars come in, you know, stars get what they want. And uh, Steve Nash has done a great job with that team, no doubt. But uh, um, you know, it was Luke Walton into, and the Warriors, right? Like, he was yeah. there and just had to keep the peace. <laughs> like that. Yeah. You know, uh, before we get into the um, – you know, it, it, it is important. If, if we're going to sit here and say uh, Walton needs to go, got to figure out the better candidates on the coaching market. And I want to say that, you know, a year ago we were having this conversation about general managers. There wasn't anybody in the Kings sphere – who did a better job of outlining every single possible <laughs> candidate for the King's general manager job than Joe. Um, and, you know, and this is one of those topics of basketball discussion that I always hesitate to dive into because I really feel like uh, even more so than just the nuances of the game that I feel really get lost in a lot of basketball commentary. Like, I don't know Kenny Atkinson's offensive game plan in depth. I don't know West Unsaid's um, career history, but she does. <laughs> so, if we're going to have this conversation, we better we figured we'd better have the smartest uh, person on here to have this conversation with. So, Jill, I'm going to open the floor to you. All right. Let's say that the day after the season ends, Monique McNair calls all the players in and says, "Look, guys, I know that Luke Walton has done some." Some okay things, but he's gone. Mm-hmm. And then he calls up you and he says, Jill, I need your help finding the next coach. Give me some names. <laughs> so Who's your favorite? I, I'm going to go with this list, but I was going to say when we were talking about the cons, my biggest con is I, when it comes to Walton is, in my personal opinion, I think there are better coaches out there. Right, that that have shown me that they can develop oh, yeah. and do schemes and right, like that's my thing is there are coaches out there. They might be assistants now, but 
you know, they come from a tree and the head coaches have said, like, no, like, you want to praise me, but these are the guys doing the work, right, um, and, and should be getting this shot. So um, I'll start off with, I, I brought up his name before, was uh, Wes Ensel Jr. Um, he, I will say this, he's literally had every possible job um, a coach can have, literally, except a head coaching position. And he's only 44. So he started as a scout uh, with the Wizards. Then he moved to an advanced scout with them. And during that time while he was an advanced scout, simultaneously he scouted the Mystics, which is their WNBA team, and was an assistant coach there. Um, He was then promoted uh, as assistant to the Wizards. And um, interesting enough, another name I will bring up is Sam Cassell. Um, but when they were there, they were credited with a lot of the success that the, um, that the Wizards were having. Uh, he then moved on to Golden State, Orlando, and now he is with Denver. So an interesting thing that I liked about him is he gets credited with the development of players, um, between all of those places, but when he was with uh, the Wizards, he was actually, um, he was uh, tasked with coming up with their offense. So, um, I mean, it's, this guy then took them to, I think it was four consecutive seasons um, of of top 10 offense. And then, uh, yes, so uh, he led top 10 units, um from 2004 to 2007 with with the Wizards. And then um, the uh, three last consecutive ones, uh, I think it was in the top four. So he was top ten, and then I want to say the last one ended up being a top four uh, in 2007. And that was his final season there. Uh, and so he was able to, you know, he was able to do that while he was there. And so not only, again, was he tasked with developing players, it was also scheming it. So now move on to Denver. What's Denver always credited, you know, with Malone? Defense, right? I've tasked this guy with putting our defense together. What has he done? Made Denver a top 10 defense. So, again, you when we hear about coaches, we always hear about, you know, uh, Gentry, he's such, you know, an amazing offensive guy. Or Rex, he's the defensive guy. Uh, Malone, he was the defensive guy. Jaeger, he was the defensive guy. This guy literally is 44. He has been tasked with both. 44, 15 years in the league, and he's been able for consecutive seasons to bring multiple teams to top five or top 10 in offense and top 10 in defense while developing, um, you know, it's the, the Jokic, um, Michael Porter Jr., Torrey Craig, who, who was there, who's now, I believe, is with Phoenix. Uh, Malik Beasley, you know, who then got sent off to um, Minnesota and was thriving prior to um, his off-the-court issues and and being hurt. Um, Jamal Murray, Monty Morris, Gary Harris, like, um, you're seeing he did it to stars and he did it to role players, right? Like, um, again, you have to have the talent there, yes, but he has also shown that um, he can take names that, you know, people weren't necessarily paying attention to in the Malik Beasley's, the Gary Harris's, the Tory Craig's that are, you know, the forgotten when you have stars on your team as Jamal Murray and, and Jokic and was able to figure out, you know, how to put these 
teams as a whole together, um, both offensive and, and defensively. So he's he's a big one to me, and I would say right away that sounds like a better resume, right? Absolutely. And the I mean, the whole offense and defense thing is really interesting because I, I agree with you that, you know, most of the times you hear guys touted as one way or the other, and I'll say, like, the Denver defense thing specifically really stands out because I, I have felt like for the last two years that they've actually had pretty poor defensive personnel and outperformed expectations on that end of the floor. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and he grew up, right, uh, around a basketball court like his dad, you know, with his dad being in the league and around. Um, so, you know, something that players say is, you know, he can relate to us, right? He knows what we go through. And so if you're looking for relationship stuff like that, you, to me, this guy has it all, right? He has the, he can relate. He, um, players listen to him, or at least players on good teams do. Um, and, and he's been able to show it on the offensive and defensive side. Uh, another guy, uh, I love, and I know I've put this on, um, Twitter as well is uh, Sam Cassell, uh, who is called the Guard Whisperer, and um, Doc actually, you know, he's coached for Doc for uh, for most of his time in the league, um, and Doc calls him a high-level game strategist, um, and that's one of the things he loves about him the most is his, uh, you know, his high basketball IQ. But he spent, I want to say, what is it like, fourteen, fifteen years in. Um, you know, in the NBA. So again, another guy who, who knows what it's like. Um, when he was with uh, the Wizards, like I mentioned with um, Wes prior to this, uh, Sam has been credited with taking both John Wall and Bradley Beal, uh, their game to the next level. So um, similar to what Minnesota did with Finch, where he came from Denver and he was credited with taking uh, Jokic his game to the next level, and that's why Minnesota wanted to bring him to Minnesota, um, to bring him to work with Cat, and because he's their guy, and if we can get this guy to do, you know, to Cat what he was able to do with um, Jokic, then you know that that would be a steal for them. So to me, if the Kings were looking at bringing in somebody in who is proven to be the guard whisperer in the league, when you have your two centerpieces and Fox and Halliburton that makes a lot of sense uh, in itself. And you have this guy who, you know, lasted in the league leading team. So if two, your two centerpieces are going to relate to anybody, it's it's going to be this guy who's been through it. Um, but again, so he, he developed John Wall and Bradley Beal. And one of the things most that he was credited with was um, uh, John Wall's rookie season to his next, he went from a jump shot of 26.7% to 35%. That's almost a 10 10% um, jump, and his assists went from 7.6 to 8.8. Um, again, Bradley Beal, uh, Beal went off on um, uh, Philadelphia for 60 points this year, and uh, Doc blamed uh, Cassell for that happening because he said if you hadn't have, have helped bring that guy along, he wouldn't have scored 60 on us. Um, he was credited where everyone says what Shea is the next right up and coming guard um, in this league. He worked with Shea hugely in the Clippers, like that was his guy. Um, Shea shadowed um, Paul George again, um, Leonard. Like obviously those are primo names. Um, <coughs> Chris Paul has nothing but good stuff to say about him. Um, 
Philadelphia now, now that he's in Philly, uh, he, uh, Simmons has actually said that he has changed and taken his game to a whole nother level. And his assist to turnover ratio, um, how to, how to prepare for each game, things like that. Maxi, same way that they're saying that Cassell has been huge for his game. And I know that's one that Bryant loves. Um, so just another guy that, right, that he's, he was in the league for all these years, and then I want to say he's he's been an assistant um, anywhere between ten to fifteen years. So again, he's these guys finding ways to to extend themselves in the league, and again, they're successful everywhere they go. And with Sam, similar to to West, you saw them take guys in their um, rookie seasons, right, and develop them out. So it's. Yes, they both have worked with stars, but they both had experience in working with um, not not big names, big names as well. But um, to me, if you can't get two of those those two guys to um, to to will you to some wins or that would accept you know a, a nine game losing streak, I just I have a hard time really seeing guys last in that. Um, and, you know, you hear guys like Austin Rivers, who is a guy who has, you know, moved between teams in this league. And he had a podcast on with Sam, and he was saying how he's not even sure if he'd still be in this league if it wasn't for Sam. Uh, when he got traded uh, to the Clippers to go work with his dad, he said it wasn't his you know, he was scared to death to work with his dad because he said his dad never coached him growing up, but he also wasn't sure how the locker room would take it either, you know, being the coach's kid. And uh, he said that Sam actually met him that night at the facility with nobody else there, just him sitting there and, you know, had a one-on-one conversation with him of what, like, what do you want to be? What do you want to be in this league? Or, Or what do you think you can be in this league? And he said, of course, I was talking about you know, scoring and offense, because he said that's that's all he's ever been. Um, and he said, nope, right, right there. You will, n- you will not get any minutes on this team if, if you don't focus on the defensive end. You want to get minutes on this team, you play defense. Don't worry about your offense. That'll come. You know, your defense can lead to offense. But if you want to see any kind of time on this team, your defense has to be there. Otherwise, you're sitting the bench. And he said that Austin said that Sam worked with him almost daily um, to getting him to where he needed to be. And you ended up seeing him playing on his dad's team um, and was a part of, you know, those teams that, that made a run. But I just, I, hearing those kind of conversations and things like that of, of, you know, not saying that we don't know the conversations that are going on here, obviously in the Kingsville locker room and like that. But when these guys very much, you know, put it out there that, no, this is the guy that, that got me there, and he's the one that sat me down and said, you know, don't worry about if you're, you know, scoring 20 points a night. That's not going to do you anything. Like, this is where this team needs you. Um, I, I'd, I'd like to think that, you know, maybe some of those conversations are happening, but, again, we're we're a last-place team on defense, so it's it's hard to know at this point if, if those kind of conversations are going on. You know, a guard-oriented uh coach who can get Austin Rivers to play defense sounds pretty good to me. I just want to say, Jill, you managed to shout out Austin Rivers and Tyrese Maxey in the same (laughs) portion here, and you are just absolutely 
playing to this podcast right now. It's perfect. It's not it could a podcast not that doesn't go by without one of those two dudes being Yeah, on. now later we'll get to Robert Woodard and Mikhail Bridges, but I want to let you have the oh. floor for another one of your candidates here. All right, so we have those two guys, and then, um, of course, Becky Hammond. I mean, you, that's – to me, it's – she's – not even about necessarily just paying her dues. I mean, right, like she's she's ready, uh, you know, and if you listen to guys like Pau Gasol, she is more than ready. Um, and that and I, I, I liked this comment because there was one earlier I made in the season or a couple weeks ago about Metu, right, like thank you to the Spurs for, for developing him and, and putting him out into the league. But Powell had a really good uh, good quote saying, would you really expect uh, Coach Pop to develop his staff any differently than he develops his players? Of course not. Um, I mean, as we've seen in the league, uh, the Spurs and the Pop tree is hugely, um, you know, you know, spread out. And, and it's very rare that it doesn't work out somewhere. Um, I love her. Um, I, I would be scared for her to come here just because I want her to go to a well-functioning franchise. Yeah, um, exactly. And and that's my thing. But, I mean, she deserves to be talked about because, to me, um, I I think she could totally take, um, you know, a, a team and, and, and be just fine. But um, she's another one where – I mean, when given the opportunity in Summer League, right, she she won Summer League. Um, and you, you hear these players talk about it. I mean, she her development style with them. Um, I know Devontae Murray is – people, to me, don't pay enough attention to him, but he's he's such a really good two, two-way point card. I mean, offensive and defensively. And, yes, he already had that talent, but you – um, you listen to Powell, and he says that she's she's a huge part of what he's been able to do, um, just in in the little things um, of of as a point guard, you know, right where to place passes, the the perfect time to do things. Um, that you know, and that's one thing we hear about from the players a lot this year, right? Like it's it's the very minute little things that end up adding up over time, and. Powell was saying that after she worked with him, you know, on just a minutia of a thing of, of where to put this pass, the perfect timing for it to Powell, he said, I don't think he made um, another mistake like that during the rest of the season. Like, they addressed it. They fixed it. Yes, kudos to the player and him for, for being able to do that. But credit for her. He said she just happened to be walking by saw it out of the corner of her eye and was like, nope, here we go, fix this. Um, we've seen her this year take over, you know, a game a game for Pop. Um, again, like, it's it's hard to find things um, in the Spurs when you're looking up stuff of exactly when it comes to schemes and, and, and who's necessarily in charge of what. They very much talk about, you know, the front row bench there and, and when you've been promoted to – to bench seats and things like that and who's sitting next to them, who's doing things, these things. But I mean, if the Spurs have been a constant, she's been a constant there. Um, they, they do a great job with big names and not big names. And you see them consistently able to, to develop a function 
Um, so to me, that's, again, that's credit to um, the whole coaching staff. And, you know, she she's another one. She's a player. She's been through it. And, you know, it's she'd be able to relate. She'd be able to develop. You're, you're getting, to me, again, a, a package of, of her. So, again, I, I want her to get a shot. I just don't know if I want her to get a shot here just because of how I know this place is. Um, as much as that pains me to say. <laughs> totally. My much more basic analysis, and this is way more shallow than everything that you just laid out amazingly, if Popovich trusts her, then I trust her. I, and, right? Yeah. And, and, to, and I get, like, too, the, like the, that quote I read of, do you think he's not developing his coaches like he develops his players? Like, it, it, Snyder. Quinn Snyder was one where he went from – he was the head of the Spurs G League, then he went to Europe, then he came back to Atlanta, um, where I think Mike was already there. So that has your, um, you know, Spurs link to that, which is where they probably knew each other. Um, and then he was grabbed by Dennis Lindsay, who was an assistant GM with the Spurs, right? So you you see the webs there, and, again, these guys, they function and they succeed – where they go. I mean, it's, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and Doc, right? That's another thing of Cassell. He's, he's a pop, you know, Doc and pop tree. And it's, um, it's, it's amazing. Uh, you know, Sam Presti, like the different levels they put out in the GM spheres and the coaching spheres and they're successful. Um, I will say um, if the Kings interview if, if the Kings fire Walton this year and don't at least try to get Becky Hammond in for an interview, I will be incredibly disappointed in the organization. But I'm like you, Jill. Um, I, I I would almost rather she go to some not Kang's organization just because I do not want her to be tarnished by yeah. uh, this organization whatsoever. Um, you know, and she might have a different opinion on that. Like, yeah. I mean, maybe she, and I have, well, I shouldn't say probably. She probably would be like, no, if I could turn this around. Like, yeah. it's, you know, it's just another challenge, uh, you know, in her Absolutely. stepping stone. But, um, there is no coaching yeah. job in the NBA that will – you remember how much we worshipped Dattleman? That dude could do no oh, wrong yeah. in the city for eight years. Um, and it, this team is waiting for that culture setter. Whoever, whoever that is, whether it's Walt, whether it's whoever comes to replace him, whoever gets this team into the playoffs. Oh my goodness! We're it's not Walt. Team has here. had one, one okay. successful I'm general manager and one successful head coach. <laughs> yeah. How depressing is that? Yeah. One <laughs> successful GM and one successful coach. Yeah. Like, you know what's hilarious? I, I keep coming back to this. I literally jumped on the bandwagon in the 2002 Western Conference Finals. And everything since then has been downhill. So I literally jumped at the tiny peak and just have watched half of the uh, fertility. I I agree with you, Brendan. It's not going to be Luke Walton. Luke Walton's not going to be the dude that turns this team into a contender. I'm just trying to be fair. Yeah, and it's going to take more than just a coaching change. But, like, I don't know. To me, like, the main difference next season is the coaching change. And, uh, yeah. I mean, we've I, seen the impact that that is that a positive coaching change has had on other organizations. Do, and if you're gonna do it, let's interview because five of the last seven 
we're not oh, like can yeah, we geez, like please. and GM like GM you did the GM thing like now if you're gonna do the GM I mean gonna do the coach really do the coach like there's no chance that Monty's gonna pull a bloody here no no chance Mon- uh, Monty knows that even if you knew your guy that's my thing is people are like oh well even if they know the guy's just semantics I don't care do the semantics like. Yeah. Do the norm. Do something right? for normal for once. Stop thinking that you're better to be outside the norm when you've done nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and to show that you should be doing stuff outside the norm. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I completely agree. So Kenny Atkinson, Wes Unsell Jr., Sam Cassell, Becky Hammond. I think Ma- Mike yeah. D'Antoni. Vanterpool. Vanterpool. Yeah, Vanterpool. Vanterpool. Vanterpool is one I mean, of my favorites. I mean, that's that's your that's your Lillard and. Lillard yeah. and your uh, CJ. I mean, yeah. the same exact way, same um, reason. Sam Cassell, you know what I mean? The guard whisper, like, Vanderpool's bad. And, I mean, and you saw this year, right, how many guys were like, that dude deserves a shot and, and he should have had one. So Totally. I mean, and my skepticism of Vanderpool would be the same thing, like, if, you know, Rex was kind of in conversations where it's like, well, you're the, de- you're sure. the defensive guy of a horrible defense. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you can't ignore all the praise that he gets from guys around the league. What are your thoughts on D'Antoni? Because D'Antoni is a hot name, obviously, um, and who knows what his interest would be when he's in a situation in Brooklyn, albeit an assistant. Um, it, it sounded earlier like you weren't the biggest fan of that. Was I reading that right? I'm, unless you're going to totally revamp this roster, which, you know, they might, like they did with D'Antoni, Um I don't know how it totally works, but that's – I mean, the the guy's got the resume, no doubt. Um, but is that like bringing in George Carl and then watching it flame? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know that anything <laughs> can go quite that bad. You know what I mean? Know. Like, I don't, but, yeah. but part of George's thing was, right, he, they didn't make the, the roster moves that he wanted that he felt that he could succeed with. So, again, like it's – but he – and Vladi took over, right, when – when Carl was yeah. already here. So, I mean, again, you're coming up, you know, these things that were, um, and that was part of George's thing is he kind of stopped, you know, giving a damn because he wasn't getting what he felt um, was the help that, that he needed as well. And so, which speaks to volumes of your your front office and, and coach have, you know, got to be on the same page. I think Dan Tony's pretty much the only um, veteran head coach who I'd even consider, and that's only because uh, I daydream about what Mike D'Antoni and his super fast offense can do with the literal fastest point guard in yeah. the NBA yeah. and a uh, and one of the smartest playmakers in the NBA. Um, yeah. But I agree with you. It, it's, why is Mike D'Antoni coming here? He's 70 years old. He can comfortably sit on the bench in uh, a New contender. York and watch them. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and help and help his protege become the coach that he wants to be. Anthony leaves. Right. He, he's getting paid. It doesn't have to fight. take any of the brunt. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, it, and and that's part of my thing of why, unless you're getting a Kenny that um, similar to a GM that we you know had to be kind of a fresh face. Um, I think your head coach is it, it's gonna have to be similar unless you can somehow convince a, a Stotts or a Mike that, that gets dropped by the Bucks um, or uh, Portland, but I don't know. 
Yeah, stocks is definitely an interesting one, you know, because it kind of seems like that change could potentially happen and be happening there just for the sake of changing something. And what's hilarious to me is it's, oh, he hasn't got it. You know, I thought they would be more in, you know, the Western Conference Finals more with Dame or they did this. I'm like, can we just get someone to take us to the playoffs? Like, right. I mean, you know, like, I get all these people complaining that, oh, we're not, far, you know, high enough in the playoffs. I just want someone to get me to the playoffs. <laughs> yeah. And he has shown that he can do that. <laughs> With the continued, like, and that team that team changes all the time. Like, you know what I mean? That that, that roster changes yearly um, to try and figure out, you know, who can you put next to Dame and CJ um, after you lost uh, um, Aldridge. Like, you know, what can you do? Um, so, I mean, credit to, to Stotts, too, who's been able to to keep them relevant, you know, with a different roster every season with the same, you know, two or three pieces. Yeah, Terry Stotts is an interesting name. I know our buddy Tim is very much on board with Terry Stotts mm-hmm. coming over and being sort of a stopgap, get us to the playoffs, and then maybe we'll find the real coach later. Um, but see, I hate to see we're already setting ourselves up for another coaching yeah, change then. That, like, that's the exact reason why I hate that argument because it's like unless you think that Terry Stotts is the dude who's going to be coaching this team when they hit whatever their prime is, don't go hire him. And, still, and Wes is still the only name that, at least so far in my research, you know, it's still, it's still ongoing that I've seen that has literally been able to take offense and defense and – and put those schemes together and be top tens. Right. Yeah, Stotts has had a lot of defensive skills. Right, and yeah. in very different versions of the game, right, 2004 to 2007, and then these last two or three years at Denver, like completely different styles. So, You're well, selling me here. To Maybe to wrap it up, so let's say Monty McNair calls you and says, hey, Joe, pick, pick the guy. Who you gonna West. hire? West, okay. West Sunsell, yeah. All right. I think that's a smart. You know, you really sold me on him. You also really sold me on Sam Cassell, but uh, oh, okay. it's yeah. I mean, I could sell you on any of the four. It's, yeah. <laughs> that's the thing is, and that's right. That's my like I said. That's my biggest con is I I've tried to be fair to Luke, you know, and say you know what I can say and and come up with whether I'm putting my heads in the cloud or whatever, I don't know of why I could see the team, you know, doing this. But the biggest con is I think there are better options. In my point of view, I think there's better options. And and those guys have been interviewing, right, with, like, good teams and bad teams. So I, I think you'd be able to get them to interview here because they want that shot. Oh, that's well said. So, well, that's yeah, I do, before we close, want to get thoughts. We were going to do this at the beginning, but we kind of naturally led into the Walton thing. There was an interview with McNair today from Ham, from James Ham, mm-hmm. um, And I just want to touch on this a little bit. I'll, I'll start, maybe we can just each say what stood out to us the most. And I'll start here. And a lot of it had to revolve around, um, you know, kind of confirmation of what we thought McNair's plan possibly was coming from Houston, a team that usually is kind of seemingly sitting there and waiting to make an impact move via the trade market. And it really seems like that is where McNair's um, head is at as well moving forward. 
And, you know, the quote says, um, for us, it was about what we, what do we have to do this year and how do we set ourselves up to continue to grow this thing? That's staying flexible for whatever move down the road. Um, and he talks about this um, bunch of assets and draft picks that Sacramento supposedly has. Um, but, yeah, I think that was the most interesting part of it to me, um, kind of confirmation that, you know, he's going to just stay and wait for moves um, that mm-hmm. pop up. And I do think it's fairly common in today's league for players to be disgruntled or be moved on from because there's younger talent that is um, surpassing them or, or growing into a role that is going to take minutes. I, I don't think it's uncommon for notable players. That I don't think it has to be a star, um, but, you know, a, a high-level starter to request a move or need to be moved from that varying front office's point of view for different reasons. It's just going to be about Sacramento having the best offer when that guy becomes available. But that was the interesting part to me of um, of that article. What, what stood out to you, Brian? Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think it's pretty clear that anybody coming from Houston organization, <laughs> it sounds like that's pretty much a theme in their roster building. Um, and, uh, you know, the Kings have made a lot of moves on the edges this year. Um, they've definitely uh, improved their depth. We talked about that a lot at the beginning of the podcast. Um, without a lot, aside from Delon Wright costing a little bit more next year than Corey Joseph, uh, without really adding a lot of uh, cost to next year. So it's going to be really interesting to see when Monty makes that move. Is he going to try to do it this year? Um, is he just going to keep waiting until the right star comes along? I don't know. It, it's an interesting roster construction uh, plan, and it's not the one I would really do in Sacramento, but everybody knows what I would have done. I would have traded all these veterans and gone for Cade. But uh, in the absence of that, you know, Sacramento has had success in the past in bringing in a disgruntled star and convincing him to stay by showing him that Sacramento is the most uh, amazing place for a superstar to play in. So, Yeah. I, I will say this, that it, it, it got me thinking, um, and, and to go off your two points of, um, you know, waiting for whether it be a star or a starter. Um, in the last two seasons, we saw Utah um, – grab Mike Conley, and we saw them grab Jordan Clarkson. Um, they they drafted well, right, developed their players. Um, you saw some of the fringe kind of guys, right, that Monty kind of looked at this this deadline where they have, um, you know, the Royce O'Neal, um, the Georges Nang, um you know, the, they're not big names, but they, they play both ends of the court, have the basketball IQ. Um, they're they're just solid, right? Then they drafted Gobert, Donovan Mitchell, and, and developed those guys. Now they went and found a sixth man, and they – it was one or two second rounders. It wasn't much. Um, where maybe if you view that to be a, a Terrence Davis, I don't know. Um, he obviously isn't that level yet because – Clarkson's done that for a while, but um, in the sense where you saw them go after, you know, a starter and a sixth man, 
um, you know, it's, I would say if it was earlier in Mike Conley's career, maybe it would, you would have that star, um, you know, attachment to it. But for, at this point with his age and, and where he is, um, it's just a solid player and didn't necessarily work out last year, but you're seeing it pay dividends hugely um, this season. You saw Phoenix kind of, again, surround themselves with, um, you know, they've Aiton, Booker, uh, drafted well, and Bridges, um, developed these guys uh, playing both ends of the floor. Uh, then you see, right, the Chris Paul, and then you were able to sign the Jay Crowders um, and the Tory Craigs and, um, you know, fill out those pieces. So you kind of saw one trade uh, trade for a star. You saw one just trade for starters. Um, but you saw quickly how much that bumped them up. <clears throat> bumped them up. Now, if that's what he's trying to emulate, I don't know. Um, but it got me thinking, too, where – uh, I, I saw a lot of criticism today after that came out of, oh, you know, he's talking about two to three years from now. And, you know, granted for him, he he's on year one here. He's not on year 14 like we are, right? So um, that doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot to him because, to me, one of the biggest criticisms people gave Lottie was he made a lot of bad moves trying to turn this thing around, you know, right away. Um that ended up, you know, hurting us in the long run with the pick swap, the pick swap, and then um, outright giving out that that first round pick. I think a lot of people even forget about that. That it wasn't even just a pick swap. He gave up an unprotected first round pick. Um, again, I don't know what kind of uh, deadline offers were there, but uh, you remember hearing about how uh, the ownership group was kind of split, right, on Sacha and Gupta and, and Monty McNair. And Monty McNair um, has stayed around in Houston, and he saw them, right, trade for that star. Um, but they also never really tanked it, right? Like, they just kept trading, right, whether it be pieces they drafted or pieces that they traded that they then traded again um, to fit around that star. Uh, you saw – Sachin, who went with Hinky, followed Hinky, right, and did the whole tank and then went to Minnesota and they did the tank and stuff again there. So to me, that got me wondering, too, was was Monty's selling point was I'm not going to do that, right? I think we're a lot closer than than maybe people believe and I'm going to continue doing this and, and, and try and turn it into one and two moves. Um, and maybe Sachin was more of the, no, we're going to trade, you know, everybody that's not at that point, Darren Fox and maybe Bagley, I have no idea. Um, and and maybe it's going to go that route. Um, but it kind of got me thinking that because I, based on all of our conversations of, of the trades and the tanking and, um, you know, pulling from the, the Houston front office and how you kind of saw that split of, of Hanky going away and them doing all the tank and draft and Monty staying with Maury, who – just kept trying to trade for stars, right, between Harden, Chris Paul, Russell Westbrook, and then getting the, the filler pieces in Covington and, and, and things like that. So um, I thought that was kind of a um, – that's that when I read that, that's what popped in my head randomly. So um, I don't know. Yeah, I think totally understandable. Um, I, I've had the same question with the whole Gupta-McNair differences and in, in what their appeal or pitches may have been to Vivek. Um, and, and I'll say that, you know, while 
if that was the case, I would have leaned Gupta's path personally. Um, I, I think Monty's totally can work. And, you know, he talked about value deals a lot at the deadline. And I think that, you know, Terrence Davis and DeLon Wright are good examples of that, of um, opposing teams being in situations where they're really willing to get rid of guys for lesser than what their actual um, on-court value production level is. Um, I, I think getting Terrence Davis and DeLon Wright for three second rounders and Corey Joseph is really good business. And while I do think, and again, we don't know offers on the table, um, that I, I would have preferred to move on from Harrison Barnes with the reported level of interest around the league. Um, in a way, the patience that he showed in wanting to wait for a good deal makes me feel slightly better about that plan moving forward. Um, and again, I do think he probably was too patient. Um, and there's going to have to be a balance struck there. But I, I do enjoy thinking that McNair is erring more on the patient side rather than, like like Joe was saying, you know, holding on to, oh, this, this team isn't going to make the playoffs in what probably is going to be 15 years now. I, I think it it is pretty poor business to, I, I don't think somebody can come in and have that in their mind. I, I think you need to look at what you have right now in those 15 years as much as it hurts the fan base doesn't really matter for right now in team building. Yeah, and I mean, as again, as much as we don't want to, as fans, because we're sitting in this 14-year drought, you know, going on 15, um, you know, how much did this, you know, front office essentially being thrown together and, um, you know, this this half a season is, you know, this season was your evaluation, right? Like that's um, – you know, they kind of got the keys, what, just before draft and free agency and everything else. And I would imagine just as much as he's trying to get a feel for this, you know, this team, the front office is, is getting a feel on how um, to mesh with each other because none of them, um, minus two Philly uh, guys, like none of them have worked together before um, and and trying to figure out, you know, their plan going forward. And then you still have your Dumars and you still have your Rebecca. Like, I mean, it – we all know this is a crazy environment. And um, my thing is I, I can see the criticisms and everything else. And kind of going to the season, um, I I had said that, you know, um, I would try to wait on, you know, my evaluations until, you know, I saw the roster going into training camp for next year um, just to give him a legit year on the job of – of what he can do because I still think that if he does want to make moves that I think moves can be made this off season. Like there's nothing that says that that can't be done. Um, and I've always been skeptical, skeptical of, of what truly was um, around at the deadline based on, you know, the, the trade exception deal and, and Aaron Gordon. Um, and then, you know, boss people in Boston coming out and saying even what Denver offered from Gordon was not even, um, you know, it was more than what Boston offered for um, Gordon. It's you hear stuff, you know, between Amick, Boston, like it, without me for sure knowing what the deals that he turned away, um, it's hard for me to just be mad and say he turned down a bad deal without actually knowing the deal. I get the frustrations of, of the tank and, and the draft and everything like that. Um, 
but yeah, it's, it's been a hard, it's been a hard evaluation year all around for everything at this point, just because we're getting such little information, right. Um, And, and every facet of the organization at this point. Absolutely. Um, But I, I do think that that is all I have planned for this episode. Brian, do you feel like there's any final thoughts that you want to get out here? Uh, I want to congratulate Jill preemptively on winning the championship in our dynasty league. The three of us are together. I just looked. You're up nearly 200 points. How many? I was I was up almost four going into today, though. I think a little over three. Um, Because I lost three players today. I lost Embiid. I lost uh, Butler. And I lost Kyrie. Like, you know, this is my kryptonite week, right? I hate that we play this week. I won over by over 1,000 points last week. And this week I'm up that because half of my roster is resting or playing low minutes because yeah. it's the final week. I'm going to shoot my shot and it. say that your superstar <laughs> team is still going to pull it off. And if they um, don't, you can blame me. I hope me. so. But, it's, I mean, like I said, I will laugh and cry because that will have been three years in a row that – I've basically gone undefeated and lost <laughs> on literally championship week. <laughs> but even even the fringe players I traded for at the deadline thinking, okay, these guys are going to play, like, th- you know, for the rest of the season, they got hurt, right? So, yeah. like. You got 50 points today from Terrence oh Davis. Me. I think you're okay. Dude, I picked that go. one up today. Yep, I was hoping he <laughs> All right. Well, I can't say thank you enough, Jill, for coming on here and sharing your sharing your coaching knowledge and talking with us about the team as a whole and, and the Walton situation, McNair interview and all that. Um, anybody that's not following Jill for whatever psycho reason, definitely do that on Twitter, at Jill Adge. Um, what, what else you got going on, Jill? Plug anything and everything. Um, and then uh, Damien and I will be doing – um, our next pod, hopefully this week, just the last couple of weeks, I had my second shot. He had his second shot. Um, and then, you know, he has the radio, the radio stuff. But we'll be doing our Hoopball Kings um, podcast this week. And then I'm also going to be on the um, Hoopball Memphis uh, podcast, uh, I think Friday or Saturday. So um, I'll be putting a link out to that as well um, with uh, the Memphis crew out there. So. Awesome. Well, thank you again for spending time. Everybody definitely check out the Hoopball podcast. You and Damien is a phenomenal duo. Um, And also be sure to check out all the great work going on at thekingsherald.com and give a look over to the Patreon to support local independent Kings coverage. And if you enjoyed this episode of the Kings Pulse podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. And you'll hear from us again in the next couple of days.